Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. I'm your host, Ben Ryman, as always. Uh, today, another another exciting uh, episode. We have uh, Dr. Natalia Barris here. Uh, she's going to be uh, sharing some of her research uh, Dr. Barris is, um, I'm, I'm actually speculating here. I don't actually know what I'm saying, but um, she, she hasn't, she hasn't, I don't think she's been doing a, a lot of research, uh, uh, but the research that she's put out already is really amazing. And I think it's, 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 it's really a sign of, I think, uh, of some, some really good stuff kind of to, to come, uh, you know, when, when sort of three out of four of the papers, um, you know, are, are really powerful and hard hitting, you know, it, it bodes well for our field. And it's just wonderful to see you know, more, more and more young PhDs in our field coming in uh, um, and, and, and just doing some really neat work on some really important stuff. And what I particularly like is, you know, we're going to be talking about some research, one, at least one that was published in Behavior Analysis and Practice. And what I really like about that journal in particular, and I'm not here to sort of pump it up, but is, is when, is when they publish articles that give you, you know, really, really good sort of, you know, an action plan at the end, and uh, and Dr. Byers's articles um, are are do just that, give you sort of concrete kind of steps on things you can do to kind of really make a difference, um, you know, for the folks you're working or for the field. And we're going to be talking about sort of both those areas. So welcome to the show. Well, thank you for that uh, very nice introduction. I'm I'm glad to be here, and yeah, I'm glad to you know we'll talk about. I know you mentioned a couple of my articles, and so happy to discuss all those. Super cool. So Natalia, before we kind of get into, you know, some of this really cool research, maybe we can kind of get a bit of an idea of kind of how you got to that point. Uh, and so I'd like to kind of hear a little bit of the origin story. Kind of how, how'd you get into the field of ABA and sort of how did you get to, uh, and, for, and, and sort of the point of kind of doing the work you're doing now? Well, I stumbled upon ABA by accident um, in my senior year of my undergrad. I, I actually intended to go the marriage and family therapist route. And it was my senior year and I had to take a class in that and they weren't going to offer it. And the only class available was an introduction to ABA class. Um, so I enrolled in that and I really loved the content, what I was learning in there. I learned of just a lot of the principles um, but it really got me curious about the field. And I think that's what I was really looking for all along. I think for a while I had been interested in how, why people behave, um, but never stumbled upon kind of this approach as to, you know, explain why people behave certain ways. So I graduated with my bachelor's in psychology and uh, Chicano studies, which is um, Mexican-American studies. Um, and I took a year off and decided to just work kind of in the fields. And I say that because I wasn't working in like an ABA setting. Right. Um, I was working with, uh, at an after school program, a day rehab a program for children with emotional and behavioral uh, disorders. And cool. I think there were a couple of kids there on the spectrum. And so we had, um, I think the youngest uh, were maybe like five-year-olds and then the oldest were I think up to 12. Hmm. And so I was there for about a year and I uh, decided to apply to grad school. Um, I got in um, at Cal State uh, Los Angeles and um, I graduated there with a 
with a um, master's of science in counseling and an emphasis in ABA. So that was that was pretty cool because we actually, as part of our requirements, had to take a couple of classes in counseling. So we got an opportunity to kind of play the counselor role and learn kind of those, quote, soft skills that cool. behavior analysts don't really learn. Totally. Yeah. So um, I, I went there. I, um, I did my thesis uh, with Dr. Mitch Freiling. Um, and the thesis was on observational learning and seeing whether mm. um, children with autism, if they observe people engaging in errors while they're learning a new task, if that makes a difference with the children's performance in relation to like observational learning. Hmm. So that was that was my master's. Um, and then it, the last year of my of my master's, I was that's when I really got into working in, in the field. So I got my first job. Um, I think back then we didn't really have the RBT. I think it did exist, but it wasn't as, I guess, prevalent as it is now. So I worked as a behavior therapist um, for a year, and then I sat for the exam, took on a supervisory role, and I had wanted to do my PhD. Um, I had mentioned that to my advisor, and I was kind of like, mm, should I do it or where should I go? That was, I think that was one of the bigger you know, kind of things for me is like, where do I go? Because in California, there aren't really PhD programs in behavior analysis. And hmm. I kind of wanted to stay um, home. Great. And so um, eventually, I just really, like cast my net wide and applied just to various schools um, outside of the state. Yeah. And um, so I took two years off between my master's and my PhD, and I uh, got accepted into uh, Southern Illinois. Uh, it was before when I started, it was a PhD in rehabilitation with a focus on behavior analysis and therapy. And so I started off working uh, under the advisement of Dr. Rufan Rayfelt. Okay. Uh, who, yeah, who is a big um, researcher in RFT and acceptance and uh, commitment training and derived relation responding. So I started off with her and then. Um, I had to switch advisors because, you know, she took on a different, like an administrative role. And so I finished with a PhD in psychology because then we moved, uh, our program moved to the psychology department. And so um, I have a PhD in psychology with um, an option in behavior analysis and therapy. And I worked under um, Dr. Darwin Shane Koch, who was not a behavior analyst. He is actually, he was actually a um, rehab counselor. Mm. Uh, so, um, you know, I learned a lot of different things from him, right? Like I, I didn't really, I guess, learn behavior analysis, so to speak, um, from him, but I think that's contributed to, you know, kind of the work that I'm doing and how I teach my students and so forth. So I think that's my story in a nutshell. Yeah. And, and, and he passed away originally. Is that right? Yeah, he did. He passed away in May. So, um, mm. that was really, you know hard on on our lab yeah but yeah we did pass away recently sorry for your loss thank you um you know so i I love this this origin story so a lot of the origin stories we get on here and 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 this is by no means a slam to these folks but they're often kind of the same they're often undergrad in some random field uh sees a job board because they need to make some extra money you know and it's often you know like you said an rbt behavior therapist kind of gig and that's what gets them into it working with kids and then they kind of just go that whole sort of uh you know masters and phd and aba route i liked for i liked first off that 
your initial sort of idea was to go and, and, and become a marriage of family therapist. I like this for a couple of reasons. One, I just, uh, first off, and, and, you know, I, we're, I was kind of touching on before we chat, you know, uh, just how, 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 how calm your voice kind of comes <laughs> off is. And I, I could really see that in a counselor. Like, I think you'd be a great counselor just for that piece alone. I think that's that for me, that that's what draws it in. They're a good counselor if they've got a really chill, mellow voice. And 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 it doesn't really matter to me what skills they have. They just have to have a chill, <laughs> mellow voice. So you got that piece going, which is wicked. But it's, it, it's interesting just as sort of, you know, as kind of coming full circle that, you know, you, you're, you're, you, you got into your PhD. Is that where you, is, was Southern Illinois where you kind of first got introduced to ACT or was that before that? Um, actually, I got introduced to ACT in, in during my master's mm. in our second year. Mm. Um, I think it was like, I don't know, it was like a special, like a, a capstone course or something. Sure. And the topic changes every year. And, um, Dr. Michelle Wallace, who taught, I, I was enrolled in her section of the course, they decided to do ACT and they actually had um, Dr. Uh, Tom Zabo come mm. uh, to class and then Dr. Adele Najowski come to class. Wow. And I, I think someone else, I forget who it was, but um, I remember, um, <laughs> I think I remember just thinking like, what is this? <laughs> like, um, this is not what I... I guess thought I'd be doing in my master's in behavior analysis. Yeah, but, yeah. But yeah, we they gave us the opportunity to kind of practice some of the, you know, I guess exercises um that's common that are commonly used in ACT. So that's where I first got introduced to ACT. And I remember also like in our verbal behavior class, towards the end of the quarter, we got introduced to RFT. Of course. Um, but I didn't know or relational frame theory, right? And so I didn't really know understand what it was. Like all I remember like being told was RFT is like stimulus equivalence. Mm. Um, but I learned that that's not the case, you know, afterwards in my right. PhD. Um so yeah, I think I got introduced early on into into these two areas. The reason I ask is I know, and I know you, you kind of went on, you talked about this in, in one of the presentations you did that was related to your dissertation about sort of the, the you know, and this is something that comes up a lot is the difference between, you know, acceptance commitment therapy and acceptance and, and commitment training. And that, you know, behavior analysts tend to sort of practice the latter. Um, and that's kind of where the research is. But we do see, I do, I, I it is quite common these days to find a marriage and family therapist practicing acceptance commitment therapy. Um, mm -hmm. So it would have been interesting for you to kind of go that route. And I wonder if you would have come in contact with ACT anyway, and, um, you know, still mm -hmm. possibly been doing the same kind of work. Who knows? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I will say though, that um, I think like it must've been in my second year. I don't know why, but I was interested in like, I guess, maybe not switching, but kind of combining my master's. So it was like mm. a focus on MF, like an MFT and an ABA yeah. focus. And I think I, I remember telling the faculty, the ABA faculty, and I think they looked at me like, what, why are <laughs> you switching to the dark side? Kind of. <laughs> and I decided to stay where I was. Um, Cause I think when I was taking the verbal behavior class, I was, I was um, getting really curious about, you know, kind of our private events and private thoughts and mm. how that influences our behavior. So I think that's where my, kind of curiosity of going to the other side <laughs> was coming out. Yeah. That's funny. The other side, it's not the other side. It's the same side. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but what another piece that I really liked and, and like, I think you kind of really, it really looks like you did all the right things. I think when it comes to sort of, you know, starting out in this field, like I, I, I like, I think, I think you made a, a brilliant decision. Um, and you touched on this when you were 
telling us your story to, to, to take a degree in counseling, because I think you're so right that we are so lacking in, in what should be, you know, our, our, one of our main skills as behavior analysts working with people is having these kind of people counseling skills, compassionate care skills. We had a, we had a chapter conference last year for our, our British Columbia ABBA chapter. And mm-hmm. we brought in uh, Bridget Taylor um, to talk about her work, her, her recent kind of work that she's been talking quite a lot about, about compassionate care. And I said this mm-hmm. on another episode, how, how ridiculous it was to me that in 2021 or in 2020, we're, 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 we're now realizing that a good bedside manner is important in our field. Um, and, and, and it sort of speaks, I think a lot to sort of, you know, and we won't necessarily go down a lot of these roads, but it speaks a lot about, you know, some of these conversations around kind of ABA reform and those sorts of things. And I think that's a big, that's a big piece that, that I think has been missing in ABA for a lot of years is giving folks the skills to sort of, you know, engage, engage other human beings and develop a relationship and, you know, and be compassionate and have good listening skills, which we're going to touch on in one of your papers. Um, and so, you know, I, 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 uh, I just give extra kudos and extra sorts of, you know, uh, uh, you know, bows of, um, of, of, uh, of, uh, of honor or whatever, to just mm-hmm. to folk, the folks that take a counseling degree, you know, as they kind of work through this field, because they could just make such a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> um, and so, so really cool. That was a really, a really neat kind of, kind of intro and kind of how you kind of got into things. So, uh, so from, you know, from your kind of work with, uh, Dr. Freiling and kind of observational learning, and now you, uh, you've, you've put out, um, sort of three articles over, over, over the last few years in particular that, uh, that, that, that I've been drawn to. And you have, we're, we're going to talk about an article that talks about racism. We're going to talk about an article that talks about sexism, uh, and we're going to talk about an article that talks about, um, you know, incorporating kind of, you know, being kind of more culturally conscious, I guess, when we're, you know, kind of creating interventions. I think and these are all huge, important areas, I think, for us as behavior analysts to learn and 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 to kind of really kind of look at changing our practices. And again, I think a lot of this also fits into the sort of the sort of you know, bigger sort of umbrella of, of kind of reforming our field and kind of, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, advancing and learning and growing, uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the advent of, um, uh, of, you know, of George Floyd and kind of Black Lives Matter, you know, I think really brought, and I think everyone has said this now, it really brought a lot more of these, uh, you know, topics to light and, you um, and 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 people really want to hear about this stuff now and learn about this stuff, um, which I think is amazing. Um, um, but you know, I'll, you know, it, you know, you know, a little late in the game. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, definitely. We have a long way to go. Yeah, too. absolutely, absolutely. It's, yeah, we're ju- we're just like you know, uh, tip of the iceberg. Uh, there, uh, there's a couple of uh, lines. Um, in one, there's one in one of your articles where you know, I think you talk about sort of, a, you know, a great things that behavior analysts could be doing to sort of improve some of these things, but essentially, but nobody has yet. 
Um, and, uh, and, you know, it's, it's a first step to kind of recognize those things, but now we actually got to get our start doing them. And, and, and so it's just really cool, uh, that you have, I don't, I, I, I guess we could kind of maybe start talking about these sort of, um, I guess in the order you did them, because I think on some level, you know, they're, they are interrelated. Um, um, uh, and so maybe we'll kind of talk a little bit about, um, about your thesis, your sorry, your dissertation first. Let's get these terms mixed up. Um, <laughs> and uh, the the lowly master student um, I was. Um, so you, for your dissertation, you 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 did um, as as you kind of just told me sort of before the the episode started. You did kind of three three studies with within it um, uh, that were basically looking at at you know traditional ways of kind of providing behavior intervention to you know autistic kids in 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 kind of in these latinx um uh families um mm -hmm. and 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 we won't kind of dive deep into sort of the um materials and methods and whatnot uh natalia did a great um presentation for um the dissemination for uh, behavior analysis uh, special interest group uh, and they have a youtube channel and we'll put the link in the show notes and, and it's just a nice hour presentation kind of on on some of the work in in her dissertation and we'll kind of go into that in more detail but i do want to ask some questions about kind of um uh you know uh, uh, about this paper but, but before we kind of get into that maybe you could just kind of tell us what why you decided to do this as your dissertation? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Um, I like, I think I was just pulling from, so I guess maybe I'll start off with this and then that'll guide me to actually answering your question. Um, Cause I'm trying to um, do this more often now when I speak about these topics is I try, I disclose, mm. you know, what d identities I identify with because I feel that that right. Yeah. Is, yeah. Um, is important. Okay. Um, okay. Because cool. it, it relates, it ties to, you know, some of my um, lived experiences mm -hmm. as a human in this, in this world and as a behavior analyst in mm -hmm. this field. So I do identify as, um, and I'm happy to explain the terms if, you know, if you think the listeners would, are maybe unsure of what some of the terms mean. Um, but I identify as a cisgender woman. So I identify with, you know, the sex I was assigned as at birth. I mm -hmm. identify as, as a female. Um, I also identify as a woman of color, specifically a Latina. My parents are both from, immigrated from Central America. Mm. And so my mom is from uh, Guatemala and my mm. dad is from El Salvador. And so, you know, grew up in that uh, kind of immigrant uh, Latino household Um and I, I speak Spanish, so I'm bilingual. I can read, write, speak Spanish. Um, and what else? I think those are kind of maybe the main ones. And I guess I should also disclose that, you know, I identify as uh, heterosexual and I also identify as non-disabled because I feel like that also, right, impacts maybe what I'm focusing on and the areas that I can be focusing on mm -hmm. or, you know, considering. Mm -hmm. um, so... I, you know, with that being said, um, when I first started working in the field, I actually worked for an agency owned by two BCBADs that are from Colombia. And I remember stumbling upon that agency and thinking, wow, this is really cool. Like, I want to work for them. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever seen that. Um, and so, you know, I, I was born and raised in Los Angeles. And so a lot, I think almost 
maybe like 95% of the clients that I had were um, Spanish speaking. Mm. Um, I rarely had English speaking clients because there was just a huge need for Spanish speaking uh, families uh, to provide services for them. Mm. And so I worked with also a lot of immigrant families. And so Mm. um, I think when it came time for my dissertation, I thought, well, this is something, you know, kind of reflecting back on my experiences as a behavior therapist and as a supervisor, um, you know, reflecting on maybe some of the unique challenges or experiences that this population has. Um, and just, you know, just kind of looking at the field of, um, that, um, maybe we don't consider language and culture enough in the services we provide, or even with the, you know, with the, with the students we mentor and supervise or the supervisees, it just, you know, it's kind of, it's not just with the families that we serve, but um, so that's where I, my idea came. And I think I stumbled upon a book I um, that talked about, um, I think, cultural, what's it called? Um, mindfulness and acceptance in multicultural competency. Hmm. Um, and so I think that's where I got the idea of, can I adapt, how can I adapt acceptance and commitment training for maybe caregivers of autistic uh, individuals? Um, and then I guess that's where kind of my idea just blossomed of, well, in the Latino culture, family is, and I, I'm sure this is seen across other cultures too, but I mm. guess how, it, you know, how it's, um, the behaviors associated with that value are different, right? Mm. Um, so in the Latino culture, like family is super important. Like my mom has even told me this. She's like, if it were up to me, like your brother, you and your brother would never move out, you know, until you <laughs> got married kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, it's. Um, it's very important in, in our culture. And so I thought, well, I think it would be really cool to have three studies because we had to have a minimum of two studies. And so I decided to just uh, do three. Mm-hmm. Um, one focusing on um, autistic children, Latino autistic children. Mm. Um, the second focusing on the parents or caregivers of um, autistic Latino children. And then the last one focusing on the siblings of autistic Latino children. So mm. that kind of everyone in the family um, you know, kind of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, get something. That's awesome. And you mentioned that one of these, uh, before we started recording that one of these is, is, is going to be published soon. Yes. So the one, um, that from the, the dissemination of behavior analysis, SIG, Mm. that recording Mm. that you mentioned, so Mm. that second study with the caregivers, um, will be published. Um, and it'll be, I'm trying to remember the name of the of the book, but it'll be published in a book that I think is going to tentatively be called psychology and COVID-19 in the Americas. Mm. Um, because my co-author, um, Sebastian Garcia Zambrano, who is a doctoral candidate at Southern Illinois university, he, uh, mentioned that there was this conference in Spanish. Mm. Um, and he's like, you, we should submit your dissertation and see if you you can present it. So that was my first, (laughs) that was last year. My first conference presenting in Spanish, which was uh, very nerve wracking for me. Thankfully, uh-huh. I just had to record it. I didn't have to do it live. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But so the people who were chosen to um, to present at that conference had the opportunity to submit their work to be considered for this book. Mm. And so, yeah. That's amazing. Um before we kind of jump into, because most of uh, kind of the reading that I did and 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 then I I watched that uh, DBA sig was on kind of the the work you did with parents. Um, um, I'm curious with the study with the children. 
was that also an act adaptation or were you actually adapting sort of just traditional standard kind of EIBI stuff? It was not act uh, focused. It was more on uh, derived relational responding and kind of language and verbal behavior. Um, because I, what I tried to do is um, I tried to recruit participants who lived in a bilingual household and so that they were maybe didn't have weren't as proficient in Spanish. Mm. Um, and so what because I, I what I tried to do is I tried to um, teach them um, certain like words of relational frames. And so I guess to put it simply, I taught them, I tried to teach them um, how to identify the words same, opposite, and different in mm. Spanish Okay. Um, using the English words. And so I taught that with, uh, with stimuli. So I would try to incorporate culturally kind of sensitive stimuli. For, mm. So for instance, with food, I would ask um, at intake, I asked the uh, caregiver kind of what are the common foods that you eat in your household um, that might be specific to, you know, your culture. Mm. And so I use those stimuli, for example, in, in the dissertation, my dissertation to teach those uh, frames. Okay. And now is, and is that something I know I don't have a lot of familiarity with, uh, you know, verbal behavior sort of um, training for kids in general, uh, let alone sort of that use of RFT, although, it, you know, it, it's starting to make more and more sense as I learn more about it every day. Um, is what you, how is sort of what you did different than what folks generally do? Um, I think maybe generally people tend to just focus on the English language mm. and don't really maybe consider or ask, well, what other languages do you speak in the household mm. or what other, you know, like languages is, does your child or um, speak or is exposed to? Um, because I think a lot of, I'm trying to think of my participants. I think the, and I interacted mainly with, with the mothers. Um, they at least spoke, were at least monolingual Spanish speakers. And I think they understood maybe a little bit of English. So I think that has a lot of significance, social significance, mm. you know, in that household, if, if the child can't communicate with those in the household who only speak a certain language, then it cuts off a lot of communication, right? And mm -hmm. other um, ways to connect. So If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to know the three secret words and enter them at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is utopia. And, and, and this is sort of a little off topic, but, and again, it just sort of speaks just to my sort of general ignorance of of, um, of teaching young children. Uh, but um, uh, I, I I primarily come from a adult sort of uh, background and working with adult clients and whatnot. Um, Trying to word this the right way, I, I'm not looking for you to sort of you know start slamming folks, but I'm wondering kind of. There's a lot of sort of these, you know, sort of protocols kind of out there, you know, there's, you know, ABLES and VBMAP and, and uh, you know, PEAK and, and, and all the, and, the, and some of these other things, which are, you know, all, all I think, you know, have 
different value. Does do, do those sorts of protocols, which have been around a lot of them, maybe not so much peak, but the other ones have been around for you know quite a long time. Uh, you know, I guess essentials for living or another one, and ones like the life skills type curriculum. Are are those do those curricula and maybe you don't know because you don't work with them and then that's okay too but I'm, I'm wondering if those curricula tend to be sort of more kind of eurocentric um, um and that the goals of them tend to be kind of more on sort of you know what the typical you know my you know sort of white family might look like versus whatever did you know mm-hmm. um i want to say that that is the case yeah <laughs> um i don't like, I don't think I've read maybe then kind of the normative sample that they used, sure, right, sure. in the initial kind of development of those curricula. But I do want to say that it's probably, I don't know, I'm guessing that probably even maybe the peop- the children who were included in those samples weren't like their uh, race and ethnicity and, mm, and languages mm. probably weren't even, you know, reported, right, which right, is an issue. Right. Um, and so... Um, like I think even with like the VB map or just any you know curricular assessment that focuses on language, they may translate things into different languages, but that doesn't mean that it's culturally adapted. Mm. Um, so what I mean by that is that so for example in Spanish and I can't think of any examples, um, but in Spanish there's just certain sounds that we don't use that English speaker speakers mm. use. And so to assess for that, mm. you know, to just to translate, right, and assess for that same skill doesn't make sense for yes. someone who is a Spanish speaker who is, you know, speaks another language besides English. Yes. Um, or even like if the curricular or the assessment have a currency, it's probably going to be US dollars. Um, right. You know, I don't think it's going to be we're going to see the Canadian dollar in there no. or, you know, like other different types of, you know, currency in there. Yeah, yeah. And so why do you know, like, why do um, children or individuals who are administers these assessments have to know that if that doesn't totally it's not relevant for totally. right their yeah. life? So. Well, and yeah. And, and, yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And, and again, to, to sort of the, the authors of those you know, sort of curricula. We, we don't know that we don't know. We're just speculating here, but maybe it's something mm-hmm. to look into. And I've also sort of heard suggestions about, you know, some of these curricula and again, digressing a bit here, but not, not really taking into account sort of, you know, sort of all the pieces of, I think of kind of intersectionality and, and, uh, and sort of, you know, gender diversity and sort of all those areas. And so I think, so, I, you know, and, and this isn't really about sort of changing everything right now, but, you know, I think just sort of speaks to the fact that, you know, a lot of the stuff that we have in place, a lot of the curricula, the assessments, the programs, the, you know, the interventions or whatever, you know, um, they're probably all lacking in some in some way um, uh, with these things, and 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 I think you make a really good point. Don't don't make the assumption that sort of just because something's been translated into another language that it's now you know culturally appropriate for that group. Yeah. Um, so kind of looking at um, at at sort of at, at sort of the, the the parent work that you were doing um, and. Uh, around kind of cult, cultural kind of kind of adapt, adaptations I, I i thought there was some neat things and again i don't know if these this stuff was necessarily in the paper or more in the presentation that i saw that kind of was talking about that paper but you talked about a few different things kind of right from the beginning in the presentation that i think were really important for folks um 
and and a bit of a wake up call for me. Um, and this is sort of around uh, you know things like appropriation, um, you know, and, and cultural appropriation is something that just starting. I'm learning more and more about sort of every day um, and kind of the different forms of that. I mean, for us up here in Canada, you know, the most popular examples I think are kind of around. Um, 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 you know, the use of uh, our, our, kind of as it relates to sort of our, our, our indigenous population mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and kind of engaging in some of those activities, you know, what, like wh- whether, you know, whether it be wearing, f- wearing a sort of a headband with feathers in it or, or, uh, you know, or, or, or dressing in a garb or, you know, a dream catcher or, or whatnot and sort of just, you know, um, uh, you know, kind of making it their own without sort of considering, you know, some of those pieces, but I, I, I really thought it was interesting that you talked about sort of the idea of uh, you were, you were kind of going through and explaining the sort of the six, you know, so sort six sort of um, uh, you know, pieces of the, of the uh, items there in the, in the mm-hmm. hexaflex. And you were talking about how, how we shouldn't, cause this happens all the time, how we shouldn't use present moment awareness and mindfulness interchangeably. Mm-hmm. Can you just touch on that a little yeah, bit? Yeah. And I will say that, you know, I, this is something that I'm learning from colleagues who come from the populations, you know, work because mindfulness, I guess. So I don't know, I'm something old, stumbling on my words right now, but uh, I, I guess I just want to just make it known that I'm not the person, you know, the go to person. And this is just something that I'm learning and trying to disseminate as I talk about my work, because um, I think it is important. Mm. Um, That's fair. And so I'm learning from a couple of my colleagues who um, are from India that equating present moment awareness and mindfulness is cultural appropriation because they're not the same thing. Um, and I think in, in the literature, that's how it's been presented, um, you know, for a long time. And I think it, it still is being presented yeah. that way. Um, mm-hmm. But I guess, yeah, when someone kind of uses the term synonymously, um, it'd be best to just say, hey, they're not the same thing. Um, mm. And and again, I, I feel like I'm kind of butchering this opportunity to really talk about this. But because what, what my colleagues have told me is that there isn't really a precise definition of mindfulness, but there there are just differences. Um, and, you know, people can mm. reach out to my colleagues. I think they'd be OK with me saying their names if that's OK with you. Um, Please. Yeah. So um, I'm Rinder Babra and he actually goes by Binda. Um, Barbara, um, mm. he is a doctoral candidate at Southern Illinois University. And then my other colleague is Manish Goyal. Um, he's also a doctoral, ca- doctoral candidate at Southern Illinois University. Mm. So, yeah, cool. that's where I'm, I'm learning from them. Good, good. I appreciate that. And, and you know, I, 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 uh, you know, I, I didn't sort of prep you for this question <laughs> prior. And, 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 and you're right that, um, you know, we definitely should be kind of going to the source mm-hmm. to get that information. And I'm not looking for you to give me the... Um, so give me a definition of mindfulness, but I think it's just interesting that there's a lot of these pieces that we just, uh, you know, uh, don't consider. And another thing you kind of touched on w- was around sort of, um, you know, the kind of the the connection, you know, the connection between Buddhism and act, mm-hmm. um, and and how maybe maybe we're still maybe we're stealing a bit from there too, and not recognizing that sort of piece, um, and that the idea that you know there might even be some cultural and racial and or racial bias, you know, in in act itself. Um, um, 
and I, and I, I, it would be great for you to touch on kind of uh, the metaphor piece, especially that that chess metaphor. I thought that was such an interesting, mm-hmm. interesting story. That's really cool. But before you do that, can you just explain really more for me? I, most of our listeners probably know more about this than I do. But what is this whole idea of using metaphor in ACT? I, I, I don't understand sort of how that Yeah. Works. So um, ACT is relies a kind of the foundation for act is relational frame theory. And so I think that's where this emphasis on metaphors comes in because we can, you know, the language plays a huge role in metaphors of like in relational frame theory, there's these different frames or relational, you know, frames of sameness, you know, stimuli are the same, how stimuli are viewed as opposite or distinct or in a hierarchy. And so in a metaphor, um, I think all those kind of frames activate um, when we're using metaphors. And so people can derive things that way. Um, so I think that's where it, kind of the emphasis on uh, metaphors comes in with with ACT. Yeah, actually, that, that, that does make sense. Okay, no, that's cool. Because, uh, yeah, okay, cool. Um, all the stuff I've been learning about ACT and RFT, just for the listeners, has been very basic and very sort of kind of foundational stuff. And, and you know... Uh, um, I'm still sort of struggling to sort of comprehend uh, the, the the real world applications, especially when it comes to sort of teaching verbal behavior and those things. And I don't want you to explain that to me right now. Uh, but um, but but uh, but I hear a lot of references to metaphor. And so, kind of going back to sort of that original question, you talk about a, a metaphor that's often used um, um, in, uh, in, in act is this thing called the chess metaphor. Do you, do you want to talk a little yeah, bit about the that? chessboard metaphor? Yeah. So I actually read that in that book I mentioned earlier, um, titled mindfulness and acceptance in multicultural competency by Dr. Aki Masuda. Um, and I read, when I read that part of the book, I was like, Oh my gosh, like how, this makes sense now how they explain it. So, um, the chessboard metaphor is you basically, um, when you're doing it, you tell the person that, um, you know, there's this chessboard and that their thoughts, the, their good thoughts are the white pieces of the chessboard, um, and their bad thoughts or their unhelpful thoughts, how I like to call them are their, are the black pieces. And so I just like, if we're in the context of race, like that just, it just, right. It just is just like, okay, well, white people equal good, black people equal bad is kind of what is, I guess, maybe the underlying message there. Um, yeah. Holy. And so I don't know. I, I think I said this in that presentation too, for the DBA SIG of um, like people from different backgrounds, like, I guess if people from the same backgrounds are always coming up with these things, you know, metaphors and all these mm-hmm. things, they're not accounting for people who don't identify with their own backgrounds. Right. So Maybe if yeah. we had, if there, if there was, um, cause I know like Steve Hayes, right. And kind of Kelly Wilson and, and all them are kind of came up with act, but maybe if we had some black or African American, you know, um, it, people part of that, that, mm-hmm. that wouldn't have kind of made the cut, so to speak. Um, and just even, um, you know, I, I did a similar presentation, I think earlier this year to a group of clinical uh, psychology students, and um, mm. we were speaking about kind of common um, exercises and metaphors in ACT and someone in this, I didn't realize this. And this speaks to my, you know, I guess my experience of being non-disabled. 
of even the mm-hmm. use of maybe music um, doesn't accommodate is not accommodating or accessible, right. For people who are, who are hard of mm. hearing. And so that's like, wow, mm-hmm. that totally makes sense. And that's something that I didn't realize, but you know, it's things like that, that we're mm-hmm. not considering and it's not being made accessible to everyone. Oh, really cool. Yeah. Really good point. It's, you know, and of course we're, we're, we're taking a snapshot and pulling out sort of one thing here, but it does seem, it does seem bizarre, bizarrely odd that no one picked up on that mm-hmm. one yeah. um, you know you know uh you know if, if it was a checkerboard sure maybe there maybe you could start to you know have to think it through a little more but black bad white mm-hmm. good wow um that's amazing um well hopefully folks out there listening are thinking about those things uh, a little more now after that i won't go too much more into kind of those studies because again i think folks i i i i'm, I'm again i'm going to put a link to that presentation you did it's only an hour long it's really succinct and has some really great visuals um that kind of really kind of paint the picture really well i'm going to recommend it to a few folks just to watch because i think it's a really nice sort of introduction to pieces there um but just looking at kind of our, our time and i really want to kind of jump into a couple of these other articles ones that uh, are are available and so i think we'll maybe we'll start with the uh the sexism article and we'll finish with the the most recent um um uh, racism article and so this article that you put out is called um uh, uh the future is female and then in brackets and behavior analysis uh, uh it's a, a behavioral account of sexism and i think it may go on a little yeah more yeah it's a, me and my long titles yeah so it's it's called uh, the future is female parentheses and behavior analysis uh colon a behavioral account of sexism and how behavior analysis is simultaneously part of the problem and solution yeah so uh, here's another another really i think a really powerful um, and an important article um, for a couple of reasons for me. One, I think just, you know, the, obviously the title and, and the obvious uh, need to sort of address sexism um, in the world and in our field is, is obvious, but I think, or maybe actually it's not obvious, or we, we, we probably would have done something mm-hmm. by now, but, um, but the, the title, the title, the title makes it quite, makes it stand out pretty mm-hmm. obvious. But what I liked about this article, and I think especially for someone like myself, who, who is a man, um, and, uh, and uh, you know, I think it's re- I, I really encourage men in particular to read this article. Um, because, you know, it, it, it really, uh, I, I find it really does a really good job of, of number one, kind of, uh, right away, scrapping some of these myths of, of kind of how, you know, you know, feminism is perceived. I think you, you give a you give a great example of uh, in the article of sort of feminism. People looking at feminism as just being sort of um, you know uh, essentially about lesbianism mostly, right. um, and, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, and, and that's all it was ever about. And um, and and there's sort of there was no other point to it. But you know, f- feminism is just you know it it. it, it, it you know, I think maybe for 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 other folks, I think it could it could also be just be called anti-sexism. Mm-hmm. You know, in in the same way, sort of we have anti-racism. I mean, if feminism means eliminating sexism, and I think I saw that line in the mm-hmm. article, and that and that was just so such a simple, elegant, you know, sort of perfect definition of kind of what that's all about. And you know, it, it's not about sort of, you know, um, you know. Uh, yeah, it's like not about, Force I'm sorry, it's not about like a group of women just like hanging out, burning their bras, right? Like how we, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, 
it, it's um it's trying to engage in behaviors right that try to ensure kind of all these social economic and political rights for all genders not you know just right. uh, people who identify as female yeah absolutely and another piece i really like about this article is that it, it points out examples uh, of kind of other research in our field that because a lot of people think i think because with the advent of George Floyd and then and then and previous that things like Me Too and Times Up and sort of these other sorts of things that have been kind of coming out more and more in terms of social justice and awareness that that spurred all these folks to start doing this work. But I mean, certainly we know that there's been lots of work in feminism for years, but sort of in our field. Um, but you, you point out in the article there a bunch of examples of, of of research and articles that folks have done over many, many decades um, on, on, on sort of this issue. Um, so this is this is not a new issue in behavior analysis. Kind of kind of my 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 first kind of question is um, well before I ask the other thing I really like about this article is the headings. Um, <laughs> the sort of the, the subheadings of the article I think are just <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah. Um, smashing the patriarchy is one like that's just not something you're going to see in a scientific article sexism hits home um uh, the f you know, word feminism that, that, that one's my favorite f the f word <laughs> yeah that's brilliant um uh you know and you know and and kudos to the editors for sort of letting you uh you know uh publish a paper with those titles um but you know i, I like that first kind of talk about sort of maybe if you could talk a little bit about uh sort of this first article that you reference a few times um, uh, that goes all the way back to 1978, uh, talking about a little bit about some of this stuff. Um, uh, this article by uh, uh, mm-hmm, Holland. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and you kind of just talk about it being um, a, a bit of a controversial article. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Paper? Yeah, I so this my paper on sexism actually stemmed and this is where I, I read the Holland article in a radical behaviorism class that I was taking at Southern Illinois University for my PhD. And so I remember reading this Holland article which were they basically speak about how behavior analysis has all these principles and kind of right technology quote and tools at our disposal, but we're not using it, especially for behaviors at the cultural level. So groups of people and, you know, how they behave. Um, And so I remember reading that and I was just so, I don't know, I guess impressed. I don't know if that's the right word, but I, I just, it really stuck out to me that article And I think that's where my idea for the sexism article stemmed from, of we have all these things in our field. We know how to shape behavior, how to punish behavior, right, when it's needed, Um, put things, put Mm -hmm. behavior on extinction. We have all these things, but we're not using it like for at home in our own field, um, which Mm -hmm. is a problem. Like, I think as a field, we might tend to just be concerned with the behavior of others, but not our own behavior, especially in the field. Mm. Um, and so this is why like things like sexism and racism are still prevalent, I guess, you know, in the world and also in our field. Um, Mm -hmm. but so, yeah, that's, that was kind of the main idea of, of the Holland article. Um, I think they were speaking about how, I think even for individuals who, um, are incarcerated and I, I apologize, maybe that's not the most sensitive language I try to, you know, be aware of you know, the language that I use to speak about certain populations, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but how, you know, they're put in that environment, right, of confinement, and they lose access to all these reinforcers. And then when they get out, it's, 
the world hasn't changed. The environment hasn't changed to maintain the behaviors mm-hmm. that they've maybe kind of learned. I don't know. Right. Um, um, while, you know, in, um, in prison or in jail. Um, and that's, you know, kind of a shortcoming of our field is those kinds of mm-hmm. things is we're not setting up people for success by, you know, mm-hmm. and are rearranging our, our environment and mediating reinforcement for, you know, the behaviors that we do want to see. Uh, so I guess that, you know, kind of ties to the sexism of, um, I haven't checked the stats, the, the demographics recently, but, you know, the BACB does have um, data on the demographics of behavior uh, of RBTs, BCABAs, BCBAs, and BCBADs, right, who just mm. self-report. Um, but our field is comprised mostly of people who identify as, as female, um, mm-hmm. uh, white females. So, you know, that, I mean, I don't know, that could be, I think that also kind of relates to right. The racism, um, article that I have, but, um, I mean, even as females, we can engage in, in sexism towards one another. I mean, I think like, we're like the worst probably <laughs> at doing it to one another. I, I'm, I've experienced it. Um, I'm pretty sure I've perpetuated that. Um, mm-hmm. and so, you know, just because we come from that, that population that is impacted by these, by sexism doesn't mean we're not, we have kind of an excuse of, oh, well, I can't engage in it because I'm, I'm part of, you know, that group. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you, 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 to, to, great, great points. And, and you, you really, you kind of speak on all those points in this article. Um, you know that that go back to that Holland article just for folks. It the, the article is titled "Behaviorism: Part of the Problem or Part of the Solution," um, and 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 essentially, I think what James Holland is talking about in this article is kind of the idea that you know, uh, and this is 1978, so you got to sort of think of the times. But um, you know, I think a lot of this still applies. Um, is is that behavior analysts often focus on? you know, fixing the person instead of fixing the context mm-hmm. um, um, back then. And this really speaks to kind of, um, you know, I think in sort of more kind of layman's terms, we're talking about victim blaming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? And, uh, and victim blaming is, is become, you know, is, is, is a hugely sort of, not sort of a hugely sexist, you know, ac- action that we, that we engage in. Um, uh, you know, I, I mean, uh, the, I think the classic example is, 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 is uh, would be would be rape, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and that you know, she, you know, she should have she 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 she, had, she was asking for it. She was dressed the wrong way, or she was looking at the person the wrong way, yeah. or or you know, she was flirting. So that means you know, and so on and so forth. And and so that's so it it, it was her fault that she got raped. You know, mm-hmm. which you know which we know, you know, has gone so far systemically to be embedded into law now. And, and, you know, and, and judges have said that to mm-hmm. women, you know, in court that, it, you know, that why were you wearing mm-hmm. that, you know, and, uh, you know, you know, when, you know, when those questions just should never be asked. So it's, uh, yeah, for sure. It's, it's, uh, it's, it, 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 it's deeply embedded it. And I could see why in 1978, this was controversial. It's interesting. I, 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 as an aside, I kind of would like to look up, uh, James Holland and see if he continued to publish after mm-hmm, that article. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, cause I've never heard that name beyond that one. Um, 
you talk about one thing you talk about that I think is, is, is a bit of a wake up call for folks, for, for, for men again, I think not, not for folks, but for men, um, uh, kind of going back to your stat, I think the stat in your paper referred to it being like 82% female was, was, you know, our field and, and you're right. It's probably even higher now. Um, uh, but that the, 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 the heading of sexism hits home refers to kind of several kind of well-known female behavior analysts talking about with with articles that talk about on some level their experiences with sexism in our own field um and uh, the one that i think really kind of hit home for me was the linda Le, linda Le, leblanc mm-hmm. reference um where uh you mentioned in the article that, that she, she in, in her 2015 paper she references uh Older male behavior analysts uh, engaging in inappropriate interactions with younger female behavior analysts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something that that you know I'd always heard about um, and experienced a tiny bit when I went to my first ABA conference about you know I don't know ten or twelve years ago, uh, where you know. Uh, where, where that that was exactly the case where where there were these well-known um you know older you know slightly hero worshipped mm-hmm. um uh, male behavior analysts you know and I'll, 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 I'll you know I can leave the names out for <laughs> this one um but I think a lot of folks can 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 put it mm-hmm. together uh who these who they are and and surrounded by you know young women um, uh, you know, on their arms, on their shoulders, um, uh, you know, um, doing whatever, uh, dancing away. And, and, um, and, uh, you know, some of it may have been harmless. I don't know. Uh, but, but you, you definitely hear a lot about sort of, you know, little, little peeps, whether it be on social media or wherever else, or in these, or, or sort of in these environments about sort of these, you know, really kind of sketchy ways of uh, uh, of engaging with folks, and I've also heard of sort of more overt actions, and and that you know, you know, the the ABBA conferences were you know essentially in in a lot of ways you know sort of the after party of the mm-hmm. ABBA, ABBA conference mm-hmm. and sort of the problems associated there, which are probably, which really it sounded to me, and and we're talking about you know graduate level and doctoral level you know, professional human beings engaging in behavior that reminded me of what could have just been a college frat. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Um, that's what it really is sometimes to be quite honest is at conferences, right? Like after the day is done, it's a lot of um, socializing, right? And maybe there's alcohol involved and, um, you know, things like that. And I don't know. I mean, I guess looking at it at a behavior analytic perspective, I suppose it would make mm-hmm. sense. And so by that, I mean, is if we have maybe a female graduate student who is working with an older right male advisor on maybe she's doing her PhD mm-hmm. and, you know, getting or I guess getting good with him or connecting with him, right, means opportunities for her and maybe, a, you know, promotion to tenure, whatever, right, uh, more publications, mm-hmm. more maybe invited presentations, uh, opportunities, mm-hmm. it makes sense, right? From a behavior analytic perspective, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, that, 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 that is seen a lot 
But like, like, is ABA really no different than Hollywood? You know, <laughs> probably I mean, not. Uh, no, you know, I don't think so. You know, uh, like, like, like may- maybe it doesn't require necessarily a- as overt sexual acts to sort of, you know, get invited to the conference. Uh, maybe it does. I mean, I don't know. I'm, um, but uh, it, it definitely sounds like you know, um, you know. A young, you know, a young female being sort of willing to tolerate, you know, the those those interactions from the older male, in order to not risk, you know, you know, some, some a, a, a loss of an opportunity. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. craziness. Um, and uh, and again, you know, again speaking to, you know, I keep saying this term, this ABA reform. Uh, that that changes need to happen. That reform is not just about whether, you know, uh, you know, um, you know, whether we used abuse in our in our in our field in the old days or still do. It's about so many other components mm-hmm. um, that you know. I think that that we we just um, aren't thinking about some of these other things, like like the idea that um, um, you know you've got that going back to those stats so you've got that high percentage of women in the field low percentage of males yet most of the published research most of the you know if you look at the published research and sort of the levels and you talk about this a bit in your study and, and i think i think it was uh is it uh dr mm-hmm. lee i think yeah, that, dr. Anita that, 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 mm-hmm. and yeah she, and she's actually coming on the podcast too um in a couple of weeks to talk about the paper you referenced in that article um where she uh, talking about sort of the 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 contributions of 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 women to research and how you know there, things like there's there's not many you, you won't find too many articles where the single if it's a single author that that it's a mm-hmm. female um, or you won't find or you're more likely to find articles where they have you know single or multiple females as the primary authors only if those folks on the editorial boards are women. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the fact that some of those editorial boards don't have women or, or, or the fact that the research coming out, you know, um, generally isn't published by women because the women don't have the pro- professorship roles mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and sort of a sort of, you know, uh, uh, you know, chain of kind of things kind of going on and what this lit, lit, Lead, leads to kind of um, in in your article is you start talking about and this re- is kind of really nice connection I think to your 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 dissertation in terms of you know the cultural piece uh, is this idea of uh, uh, that we have an actual kind of culture of sexism and um, and and I guess and racism too I suppose um, but the article is speaking more about sexism and 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 feminism. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of the behavioral analytic interpretation of culture and, and kind of, you know, what it means to have this whole culture of sexism and then kind of how we can address it? The second secret word is metaphor. I guess taking from kind of Skinner's definition and thinking of the, maybe the three levels of selection, how you know, there's just different, there are three levels of, I guess, behavior and how um, behavior evolves and maintains. And so at the third level, he talks about um, cultures or like um, groups of people engaging that have, that share the same practices. 
And so um, how maybe culture is transmitted is just in, you know, in a group, I guess maybe even in behavior analysis. I'm trying to think of an example of, I don't know, maybe even that behavior of, right, maybe those, those inner, inappropriate interactions with the older, you know, people in power, right, um, of how that can be transmitted across generations to, well, this is how I, you know, this is what I did to kind of advance my career. Maybe this is something you should consider doing. And so, right, that behavior was reinforced for person A, and so it gets transmitted to maybe person B. Are you a BCBA supervisor looking to streamline your practice? Or maybe you're working towards your BCBA and need to find the right supervisor. Homehouse offers tools that make supervision so much more enjoyable for both supervisor and supervisee. For supervisors, they offer easy meeting documentation, competency tracking, monthly verification forms, a built-in supervision curriculum, and so much more. For supervisees, Homehouse has a fieldwork tracker with built-in auditing, monthly verification forms, a curriculum, quizzes, and more. If you're looking for a supervisor, they even have a supervision marketplace where you can connect with BCBAs until you find your perfect match. Kind of like professional dating. For more information, go to whomhouse.com forward slash speak or search whomhouse on Google. And, you know, across the generations of, of behavior analysts. And so obviously, you know, punishment, we could see the same with punishment. If behaviors can be punished if, you know, um, they obviously stop contact or, or you know, stimuli are either added or removed, right? And it decreases behavior. So it's just kind of these practices, these group practices um, that people engage in, and they can, you know, be in relation to gender, race, profession, really anything. Um, And I guess I'm blanking on what the second part of your question was. I'm sorry. No, no, it's good. And and actually, I'll ask that in a second here, because it, it, you're, uh, I, there's something you kind of touch on too in the article, which um, uh, I, I recently had um, uh, Val Saney on. I don't know if you know him, um, um, but he he put out a study with with well, he just was primarily I think his grad student uh, Hannah Vance, mm-hmm. um, and they put out a, an article uh, in 2020, which we talked about called "Systemic Racism and Cultural Selection: A Preliminary Al- Analysis of Meta Contingencies." Um, and that article was, I, I talked, I, I think we, we talked sort of before we turned the interview on, on how this, this, this article you did on sexism, you know, it took me four reads to really kind of, <laughs> kind of start grasping some of the mm-hmm. topics. Uh, his was the same. His, his probably took me eight <laughs> reads, um, um, because he really dives into this, um, and I highly recommend folks maybe, uh, you know, uh start looking at some of the work of Sigrid mm-hmm. Glenn. Yep. Um, and this whole, this whole idea of kind of interlocking contingencies and meta contingencies mm-hmm. and, you know, you know, words like that can make a, a, a non-academics brain fry. Um, um, and, uh, but really what it's looking at is essentially the, 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 the reinforcing contingencies of cultures and how large groups behavior kind of reinforces each other and, and over time kind of creates this. And so you kind of talk about um, how, how we've um, essentially through these kinds of contingencies, how, how, how behavior analytically we've, we've shaped sexism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was really interesting and kind of how, you know, uh, how, the, how, how, you know, and how that all kind of gets reinforced and folks can kind of read the article to kind of, kind of, kind of uh, get a little, little little more into that um 
and, and with that, you kind of tie in um, sort of this idea of um, of of the waves, the the four waves of feminism. Mm-hmm. And I think this is something I I, I think folks would like to, like hear about, and because it was really interesting to me, I think because I think for me, I always equated feminism with wave one, mm-hmm. um, and it almost kind of reminded me of sort of what led the labor movement and kind of what led to sort of the the creation of unions and, um, and, and, you know, sort of, you know, workers rights and all those sorts of things and sort of the deep sort of foundational work they had to do um, to kind of, you know, get some equality in the workplace. Um, but nowadays the activity of a union is so much different. Uh, similarly with feminism, I think, it, at least in your article, you, you kind of, and I'm just, I'm basing this entirely in your article. I have no background in this whatsoever. Um, but, uh, you know, can you sort of describe those four waves and kind of where we are now? Um, I will try my best. <laughs> uh, yeah. I will be quite honest. I have my article open right now. <laughs> and exactly no on worries. that page yeah. that you're referencing. Good. But yeah, I mean, there have been different um, waves of feminism. And I think that we are currently in the fifth one. Um, okay. And so it's just kind of, you know, maybe the purpose of feminism has evolved right over time um, and how like the behaviors that people have engaged in, in alignment with feminism mm-hmm. have also evolved. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, for example, the first wave of feminism, it, it really tried to obtain access to you know, equal, equal opportunities for, for people who identify as female um, through the women's suffrage and, you know, kind of rights for education and, and things like that. Mm. Um, and then the second wave um, shifted a little bit and it focused on maybe shedding light on oppression and discrimination against um, mm. people like who are part of the working class. So those included people who identify mm. as black or African-American or people who identify mm. as women or um, people who didn't identify as heterosexual. Um, so I think it's, you know, things around there started to um emphasize intersectionality a little bit more and so intersectionality Mm. maybe for people who aren't familiar with the term is a term coined by dr lee kimberly uh, crenshaw um and she i think how she um coined the term was she spoke about how her experience as a black woman in the world is doesn't really speak about her experience or being someone who's black doesn't I guess, considering how she's someone who identifies as a woman and someone who identifies as black Mm. and how those two things need to be considered and how they overlap in people's Mm -hmm. experiences in the world. Um, Because sometimes we may talk about sexism, but we don't talk about sexism as it relates to women of color, because that's a different type of sexism. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's this term white feminism of how, you know, like white women are all about equality, but when it comes down to racism, because that's where right that kind of women of color kind of right component comes in, mm-hmm. that they're um, that they don't recognize it or they're not advocating right where mm-hmm. um, maybe a, a female colleague is experiencing racism. It's just those for it, it might be seen as two separate things when really they are intertwined. Um. Yeah, no, and that, that's interesting because I had a, uh, it's a good example. I had a guest on recently, uh, it was like episode 22, uh, Jessica Bethel, uh, and she's a Black behavior analyst. And I asked her the question, um, 
we're, we're talking about sort of her, her experiences with racism. So that's kind of how, how we kind of got into this. And, and I asked her sort of about her experiences with kind of racism um, in the field, uh, sort of in her early years. And she said, and, and, and what she said to me really kind of reminds me a lot of what you're saying and really speaks to that intersectionality piece. She said, well, you know, I don't know if I experienced racism or not, because I'm also a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so, and so I don't know if people were discriminating against me because I was black or because I was mm-hmm. a woman, I couldn't tell. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, because it wasn't all, it wasn't all blatant and it was more kind of microaggressions or just, you know, a lack of equality or lack of access to sorts of mm-hmm. things. And so I, I think, I think that's a really important point is that, you know, that, um, it, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not just about being a woman. It's not just about being black, but how those, the, the, the intersectionality thing, I think the term intersectionality is, is something that, you know, maybe I didn't really sort of think about till now, isn't just, you know, and, and for everyone out there who's, who's now going, duh, <laughs> uh, to, to me, uh, but isn't just, uh, uh, you know, having multiple identities, but it really is about how they intersect. It's about how, and 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 I think that's what you're kind of part of what you're kind of trying to mm-hmm. say is that it it you know being being a black woman versus being a a Latina mm-hmm. woman versus being you know uh, you know um, um, you know a, a South a South Asian mm-hmm. woman uh, completely different experiences completely different things going on completely different pieces to consider. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think um, maybe as women of color, we may have similar experiences, but they won't ever be the same. And I think that's more so right right, for um, black women. Um, You know, I've in the last year, I've connected a lot. I formed a lot of connections with uh, with people who identify as, you know, black women. And I I'm Mm -hmm. I always keep in mind that even though right, we can relate on certain with certain things in terms of our experiences in the field I will never know what it what you know it 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 feels like mm-hmm. to navigate the world in the field as a black woman um because you know it's just with anti-blackness and colorism right it's just that um that those uh, are different experiences so yeah definitely totally yeah before we kind of finish off this article with some sort of some action items there's one other kind of area that I just want to touch on briefly that I that was that that kind of really again resonated for me is that sexism kind of there, there's kind of these two kind of subtypes of sexism um, um, the uh, the sort of the hostile versus the benevolent um, and, and the idea and I think I think a lot of folks you know um, similar to you know similar to the kind of the racist conversations and the comparison of sort of you know direct you know, sort of racist violence and, 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 you know, overt sort of, you know, negative, you know, racist language. There's, there's, there's the folks that engage, that have the implicit biases, gain those microaggressions and don't even realize sort of those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like this is kind of the parallel and that hostile sexism refers to sort of, you know, you know, me, me essentially saying, you know, women belong in the mm-hmm. kitchen. That would be like a hostile, you know, direct, you know, and, and, and or, or rape or anything else, you know, a rape would be, it'd probably be at the more extreme end. Um, and, um, you know, and, and so I think a lot of folks who think, well, I don't do any of those things. So I'm not sexist. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, actually fall, actually a lot of them. And I'm, and I know I was for, you know, a, a lot of my life, one of these 
people that fell into sort of the other pot, mm-hmm. the, the benevolent sexist. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and correct me if I'm describing this wrong, but I think as I understand it, the benevolent sexist is kind of, it's the person, they're not doing any of that kind of overly aggressive stuff. Instead, they're doing things like, um, um, you know, well, I think one, I think you had one example, I think when you're talking about sort of shaping sexism where, um, you know, I might, um, uh, uh, let, let, I don't know if you are or not, but let's pretend you're married to to, to a male, um, and I go up to you and say, you know, you tell me about, you know, your your, you know, something or other, and, and I say, well, well, let me talk to your husband about that because he's the one that knows about cars. Mm-hmm. Um, that's benevolent sexism because I'm just assuming you don't know anything mm-hmm. about cars because you're mm-hmm. a woman, um, and maybe that's a bit of a you know, of, of a choppy example, but I feel like there's probably a lot of us men uh, specifically that kind of probably are, are probably engaged in levels of benevolent sexism all the time and don't even realize mm-hmm. it. You think yeah, so? I, I would agree. Yeah. And especially like with our private behavior, I think that's where a lot of mm-hmm. things like our um, sexist, you know, kind of thoughts or racist thoughts are really salient in there and that's where they're private where no Mm -hmm. one has access to them except us Mm -hmm. and so we can really kind of say well that's not sexist you know or i i didn't act on this Mm. thought so i wasn't racist um right 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 but the fact that you're still having that thought i guess that's what that implicit kind of bias piece is is you know it it, it's still it's still yeah yeah and i think the key is being aware of when those thoughts come up and how yeah. you respond when presented with maybe those situations of, I don't know, like, um, for instance, of, and I know we're kind of, n- now I'm kind of talking about racism, um, but um, sure. for instance, if we see someone, you know, like a man of color or a black man approaching us on the street, coming mm. kind of in the direction that we're walking, and if we clench our personal belongings, well, yep. you know, um, that's has probably some racist undertones right there, right? Of you know, stereotypes yep. and, and things like that. So being aware of when we have those thoughts and engage in those behaviors and, you yep. know, monitoring how often we are engaging in those thoughts and behaviors and um, trying to def- identify opportunities where we could do the opposite, you know, be anti-racist yep. or like you said, anti-sexist. Yep. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would, I was totally that guy. I would regularly move my wallet from my back pocket to my front pocket mm-hmm. when folks were coming towards mm-hmm. me. Um, so I totally get that. And it was, it was, it was, it was almost unconscious doing mm-hmm. it too. You know, I wasn't even sort of thinking, Oh, I might get attacked mm-hmm. here or I might get, you know, mugged or robbed. It was just sort of got to mm-hmm. do it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So I, I get that. Um, well, before we kind of die, it's a, we're starting to segue into racism. Before we dive into that, you do talk about sort of um, some things that behavior analysts maybe could do um, to kind of improve these things. And this kind of starts to fall under the heading of smashing the patriarchy, which is awesome. Um, <laughs> um, um, and uh, one thing you talk about, which I thought was a really great point, was sort of, you know, how we're really lacking in certain, in, in education on kind of equality and, and consent until you get into university. <laughs> It's only in university where you can finally take a gender studies course mm-hmm. or a women's studies course or or see a group that's talking about, you know, or see or even have a, see a, a club or whatever. that sort of talks about those things. But prior to that, you know, it's like um, there's nothing. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's nothing. Um, um, and I feel like maybe I don't know, maybe when I was in high school, that was the case. And I don't know if that 
things have changed since then. If now there are maybe clubs that students head in in high school, right, mm. that maybe focus on um, gender equality and things like that. But yeah. I think overall, it's that's not the case. And I think there are. I mean, I, I mean, I, I know I was working in a high school uh, a year or so ago, and and uh, you know, and there and there were sort of groups like you know um um sort of like uh uh groups in particular to kind of s- support you know those that kind of identified as transgender or whatnot but those groups were just there for those folks mm. to sort of mm-hmm. you know connect with each other and get supports from each other i don't know that those groups in any way actually provided any education mm-hmm. you know sort of for the rest of the school so what 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 are some things? I mean, this is this is behavior. This is we, we've your article does a great job talking about shaping and and the contingencies in play and and kind of you know how we kind of got here. Um, what, what what can we do? Um, do you mean in the field or in, well, in I the think, world? I think we. I, I, well, I think in the world for sure, but I think we got to start in our own yeah. field, right? I mean, if 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 we can't clean up our own shop, how are we going to, you know, sort of make suggestions for the rest of the world? Yeah. So I think we need to sort of, you know, deal with our own problems first. Agreed. Um, I think, and I can't remember if I mentioned this in the article, I feel like if I were to write this article now, it would be written a lot differently. Um mm. For example, I think I talk more about intersectionality because that's something that I can relate to. But I guess that's beside yeah. the point of your question. Um, no, I think um, one thing that we can certainly do is I think all of us, to a certain extent, have power and privilege. And mm. so, mm. I mean, I think that I've been fed this idea of like, well, I'm a woman of color, so I don't have that much power. But I, I have a lot of power and privilege. I have a Ph.D. I was born in the U.S. I like there's all these mm. things. Um, and so I think one thing that we could do is using our power and access to, you know, certain environments and certain opportunities to bring others along and to empower them, uh, maybe especially women, you know, because I think maybe we, maybe as women, we have this, or I don't know, maybe if Black, Indigenous people of color maybe have this idea of like, well, I need someone else, you know, in order to succeed. I need access to someone else's environment. When really that that's not the case. Um, I think there's mm. like the, um, having a community is so important. I've, you know, this last year, especially because of the pandemic, you know, I've connected with so many people internationally and I've broadened my community. Um, and so, you know, we, we try to empower one another. And so I guess being there as, as to support one another um, being anti-sexist, as you say. So when you see sexism occurring, and I know this is scary because even I, right, I, I, I'm faced with these situations. I'm like, okay, I know I should say something, but it's scary. I mean, that's normal, right? Um, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but moving towards being more vocal about things and um, you know, tacting when sexism is occurring. Um, because if mm-hmm. we're not mediating punishment for those things, then it's, you know, it's still going to happen. Yeah. Um, so I think that's one of the things is using our power to, you know, like tax sexism and, um, ha- you know, with the language that we use or the assumptions that we make, of if we have maybe like a female supervisee or something, um, I don't know. Like I, I read this example recently and because I had to take a training on like discrimination at, at 
at work of, <laughs> you know, not just asking women how their families are, but asking everyone, yeah. asking men how their families are, because they also will have mm. families, right? You can't assume that just women are mothers, mm-hmm. right? Par- or males can be fathers too, or, you know, anyone of any gender could be a parent. Um, so just being aware of, right, the language that we use, the actions that we engage in. And so, because people are, especially for supervising others, they're, they're seeing that we're modeling them, that for them. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that's part of where, you know, this culture transmit, this culture of sexism or culture of anything really. So. Yeah, no, that's really good. Um, and I don't, I don't want to get into it, but I, 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 because of time, because I do want to touch on this last article, I just I encourage folks to check out this article in depth because of all the different sort of references to sorts of you know to all the other articles that are kind of that the 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 now Natalia talks about. There's one in particular that I, I'm really keen to kind of dive into, um, where uh, I, I believe the author is Woolport. Oh or yes, Woolport. yes. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and and she, and and is that is, is Woolport? Yeah, a woman I think or, she is a woman. Um, yes. And, yeah, and so so she does a feminist analysis of Walden too. I can only imagine what what's going to kind of come out of that. So, uh, you know, I, I think folks really need to kind of check out that piece. I, th- I think I think from what I from what I gather and from what from your sort of summary, it, she, it, it's not all bad, Walden too. But there there's definitely some pieces that um, that that needed some tweaking. Right. In there. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, I know the field worships. I mean, let's just put it plainly: worship Skinner. Yep. Um, Absolutely. And so, right, Walden too was written from his perspective of assuming, yep. assumingly, right, a person who identifies as a male and a heterosexual male. Yep. So, yeah, yeah. There you go. Enough said. <laughs> yeah. uh, says it all right there. Exactly. We 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 we, we do. I mean, uh, we, and you're right. Our, our field worships a a a a a, a, a white uh, heterosexual man, and and we. You know, we often take, you know, and, and you know, people are probably going to write letters. Uh, but <laughs> I um, welcome the letters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, me too. But people, you know, I, I also even just kind of wonder sometimes about sort of Skinner references in general, because um, no, 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 don't get me wrong. I know he was a researcher and I know he put did some good science, but sometimes we'll, re- we'll reference Skinner when it's just Skinner's opinion. Mm-hmm. and and we'll use that sort of as fact mm-hmm. because it was skinner mm-hmm. but but if 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 this if a, if another guy you know if if i if i wrote a paper and said all that stuff and just said it was my idea and didn't reference anybody i don't think i'd get oh published. no no that's that's publishing for you <laughs> yeah so that that's uh so there, there there's a lot of skinner skinnerisms in there that uh you know, I think I think folks just need to take with a grain of salt for sure. You know, we're I, I, we're, I appreciate him founding the field, but you know, you know, um, there 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 there's lots more good stuff mm-hmm. out there. Um, and the last, I think, the last piece you mentioned in that article, though, which I think is is probably another good thing, is is to is this sort of mentorship piece, mm-hmm. um, and really just encouraging, I guess, women who are already you know potentially in a position of power. Um, to be mentoring others in kind of, you know, the ways of, you know, sort of, you know, uh, being, I guess, you know, anti-feminist or anti-sexist, sorry. Um, um, uh, is that is that sort of what that's about? Or? Yeah. And I think I also in there too speak about how, and um, like, 
I think ideally people want to seek mentors who identify with the same identities that they do. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. that's not always available. So I think in the article, I speak about how, um, you know, I guess people who identify as female are also encouraged to seek out mentorship, maybe with males, um, mm. you know, because that could be, um, I guess, helpful for, you know, for the type of mentorship that they're seeking. Um, like I think of my mentor, of an advisor, Dr. Freiling, um, you know, he, he identifies as male. And so I, I feel like he, he has been one of the people who have really advocated for me. Like he really, I mentioned him that I wanted to do a PhD. And at that first time, like that first mention, he's like, okay, well, we have to, you have to do a thesis because that's, you need that for a PhD to get in. Um, Mm, And so he mm. really kind of pushed me and, um, you know, I think provided me a lot of support. And even though we don't Mm. identify with the same gender, you know, I feel Mm. like even to this day, I mean, I was his student like six years ago. We still keep in touch. We still work on things. Um, So, you know, I really value his mentorship, even though we don't identify from the same you know, with the same gender and, and race or ethnicity. So. Sure. Sure. Well, and I think, I think that that's a great point. And I think that it, it's, it's not necessary that you get mentorship necessarily from someone with sort of lived experiences with these mm-hmm. things. I mean, not that that wouldn't be mm-hmm. wonderful, um, but also to just get mentorship from folks that, you know, at least have those values, yes. mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and have that perspective and have that understanding of, of, you know, all, all the things we've, we've talked about already today. And, and they can be a great mentor mm-hmm. for, for someone to sort of, you know, try to avoid the, the perils of sexism and whatnot. Yeah. Like I think um, like seeking mentorship based on function, not on topography might be helpful. Mm, nicely put. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Okay, let, let, let's uh, let's jump into this last article. Do you still have some time to chat of with course. us? <laughs> awesome, yeah. Uh, 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 you know, I, I, for, uh, for some reason I thought three articles, you know, we'll, we'll cruise through these, but, you know, there's just a, a lot of really important pieces here, a little important topics. And before I jump into this, is there anything kind of else related to those? I find this is a sort of a, a newer area for me as well, and I'm, I'm doing a lot of learning myself. Uh, I, I, I'm wondering if there's any questions maybe I didn't ask about that article that maybe there was some stuff you want, you'd want to add. Oh, I don't know. I, I, I feel like we got <laughs> through like the main kind of chunks of that article. Okay. Yeah. And to All be right. honest, it's been cool. like a few years since or a year or two Fair since enough. I read it or, but yeah. All right. Good, good, mm-hmm. good, good. All right. Well, we'll, we'll let's jump into this last one. So, this uh, the, the the final article we're going to talk about is um, uh, it's titled on the importance of listening and intercultural communication for actions against racism. So this is a great paper. So we've had we've seen a lot of really good work coming out um, 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 uh, on on racism in general in our field um, and um, um, and sort of you know analyses of that and behavior analytic analyses of that and. And uh, there, there's, uh, I, I, I did one episode there um, um, uh, talking about sort of empathy training for racism, which was cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, there's, there's some, there's some interesting things out there and, and there's, and, and a really good background now, I think of, of research. And I think there's more coming out every day. Um, but what I, what I, again, what I like about this article in particular is 
um, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's relatively short. It's an easy read, but more, more, more to the point, um, the bulk of this article is action steps that, you know, we can take to kind of, um, um, start to, you know, actually, you know, do something about, um, kind of, kind of racism, um, in, in, in our field. So with that in mind, um, maybe you could, uh, start by just telling us, um, why, why you decided to write this article. The third secret word is hostile. Sure. Um, so the idea came about, so I was speaking with uh, Dr. Rocker Catroni, who is a co-author on this article. Um, mm. And I can't remember how we got into this conversation, but I, th I think I remember mentioning how, um, like, for instance, and I'm sure it's this was seen across the, the world of, you know, during the during last summer when, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement was with the protests, right, and all those um, actions were being taken, um, like mm. here in Los Angeles, like in the Hollywood kind of where the Chinese theater is, there was this big thing on, on the, on the pavement there that they just kind of painted black lives matter. Um, mm. and so I was, I think I was telling him how, um, I, I don't think that like, um, efforts like that are really, is what's the solution to racism. Um, they're kind of mm. all these kind of top like performative or topographical actions, right? Of, oh, well, let's just hire mm -hmm. more black indigenous people of color. Let's, you know, um, all these other things, right? Like with Columbus Day, right? Like let's um, acknowledge, mm. right? That it was, um, I forget the term, but right? Indigenous people day, is that what it is now? I think, but really that doesn't really get at the root of racism and the racist mm -hmm. actions. So I think like even with diversity, equity, and inclusion, like that's been a term that's been, that's taken off recently. And so I think people yep. are, might be stuck in the diversity part, but having diversity doesn't mean you automatically get equity and inclusion because we can have people who come from diverse backgrounds, right? In a group, but that doesn't mean that they're going to be get, that they're going to receive the same opportunities or, or treated mm. the same way just because there's yes. diversity. And so um, we were speaking about that and I was saying how historically, right, Black, Indigenous, people of color have been telling us what, what, what needs to be changed, um, mm. but it hasn't been done yet. So as listeners, mm -hmm. um, so as people, you know, who aren't part of these uh, communities, we haven't been, you know, from a Skinnerian perspective, ironically, haven't mm. been <laughs> <laughs> mediating the reinforcement <laughs> Right. That that right. Um, that these speakers have been requesting, so to speak, from a kind of verbal behavior perspective. So that's where kind of the idea yeah. came from. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 again, uh, right right away, you know, it, yeah, we, we, we get we get cool headings again. <laughs> um, and and, uh, you know, the, the first one being, you know, the article kind of just starts with a bit of a, you know, some definitions of racism and whatnot. But um, this, the utopia of a quote unquote post-racial society uh, is awesome. Um, um, and, and it's so true because you, you reference uh, in, in particular, uh, and I, I guess this is sort of when that, when, when this kind of started is, is, is when, uh, you know, Barack Obama became president. Mm -hmm. And sort of the, the idea, you know, I'm sure in a lot of the a lot of kind of racist um, communities was that um, 
you know, uh, racist and, and, you know, and generally speaking, racist communities do not identify as racist. <laughs> Never, um, yeah. You know? <laughs> so in a lot of these racist communities, just to clarify there, um, uh, the word was racism is over, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, there's no racism anymore because we have a black president mm-hmm. now. So we clearly have racial equality. If, if, if a black man can become, mm-hmm. you know, can, can have sort of the most powerful, uh, you know, uh, post, you know, um, in the country, uh, then we might, then clearly we've solved all our problems and it's over. Um, and, yeah. uh, and so, you know, I, I think, I think, um, and, and I think in, in a lot of ways that, that probably, you know, that probably caused, you know, certainly in, in the anti-racist kind of sort of movement to kind of take a few steps back instead of forwards. Mm-hmm. Is that? Yeah, yeah. I feel like, you know, with, with president Barack Obama's, um, oh my gosh, I, right. Him becoming president or elected president. People really thought that we, now the United States was, wasn't racist anymore. Right. Um, yeah. but I think that it just, the racism just came out more. <laughs> Um, yeah. and then especially these last four years in the U S um, and I think maybe mm. people might even say that about our current vice president of the United States of, of you know, with Kamala Harris of, Oh, well, we're not sexist sure. anymore. We have a female vice right. president. No, like I'm, I'm, you know, we can look at how the media has spoken about her, the language that they use to tact write her actions or to describe her yep. and say, I'm pretty sure the same with, with president Obama. You know, I think there's just a lot of racist um, undertones, sexist undertones, respectively, for those two individuals. And so it's become more apparent instead of what people think is the opposite of we've eradicated these two things. Absolutely. And, and, and yeah, I mean, and, and I think it kind of goes on to talk about sort of, you know, post Obama, you know, these, um, you know, the the many many uh you know uh names of folks that have that have been murdered you know mm-hmm. um since since obama and of course pr- prior to obama you know uh, you know mostly by police but you know uh, but some by other groups as well you know shows that really you know re- really nothing's changed mm-hmm. you know and 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 why and why would why would one assume it had i mean that it'd be sort of like saying you know it'd be sort of like you know random you know um black person getting the first job in you know i don't know um or a better example might be like uh, I saw a story recently about a a couple of uh, I think there were high school girls that um, um, made 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 the made the boys football mm-hmm. team, um, but and that's amazing and that's awesome, mm-hmm. but it didn't eradicate sexism. Right, yeah, <laughs> you know, you know, what? Why would it make any more of a difference for someone with a lot more you know power? to get a job and thus suddenly erase everything. But yep. But I think that's, I think that just made for an easy sort of out for these groups to sort of not have to deal with any of this mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you talk about um, this article really talks about kind of the importance of, of, uh, of listening. And so essentially listening, I think it's, it's, essentially this, this article is all about how, the, the, how 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 important listening is. So why is listening so important in in sort of the uh, um, uh, in sort of the march towards um, 
um, ending racism? Well, I guess if we're listening from the first from this verbal behavior kind of Skinnerian perspective, right? Like how um, we were speaking about a little bit earlier about how a, a listener mm. and a verbal interaction, um, they're the ones who mediate the reinforcement of you know, what the speaker is saying. So if we take, you know, mans, right, of people asking for things, if I'm, if I'm the speaker right now and I'm asking you for, I don't know, something, right, I want water, you're the listener in, in that example. And so your, your role right there is to, right, to maintain my behavior of asking for water is to provide me with water. Um, so I think historically, as listeners, we haven't been doing a good job because it's, um, you know, black indigenous people of color still asking for those reinforcers and we're not, we're not giving it. And mm. we're just kind of mm-hmm. band-aid kind of solutions to things of, you know, um, okay, we'll hire you. That's fine. Um, you know, we'll promote mm. you. That's fine. But that's not really, again, if people aren't being treated with equality and aren't being included, then what's, mm-hmm. I, I don't want diversity, right? I keep, like we need all three things. It's not just, we can't pick yes. one. Yes. Yes, no, exactly. And so, and so what this brings to sort of the, the main point of this article is kind of this, this concept of, uh, of intercultural communication. Uh, and intercultural communication, you know, you know, is exactly what it's, what it, re- what it reads. It's, um, um, uh, I th- as, as I, th- I think as I'm kind of reading through the article is, is, uh, is communication between folks of different cultural backgrounds mm-hmm. um you know nothing nothing um you know crazy or deep or um you know uh, overly complicated mm-hmm. about it and yet um it's something that um you know that we struggle mm-hmm. with um what 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 are what are because it, it would make sense that if we could have really good intercultural communication and we could listen to the perspectives of you know, uh, folks from different different backgrounds and different uh, ethnicities and different languages and different countries and different uh, you know sort of anything, um, um, and really listen and and you know kind of develop those listening skills that you know and, and we can start to you know have some empathy and mm-hmm. and and, uh, and 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 put ourselves in their shoes and maybe and maybe change our behavior. Mm-hmm. So, what's preventing that? Um, I think kind of, you're kind of touching on it of this lack of maybe perspective taking, um, or even I think of when we have, um, when we're speaking about racism, um, maybe especially with people who identify as black indigenous people of color and people who don't identify right with, with being that of kind of what's, what's the purpose of having that conversation? I feel like most times, and I'm, I've certainly been in these situations where I'm trying to kind of like prove myself or trying to change the other person's, you know, mind about things about racism because they clash with, you know, my perspectives or thoughts on racism. Mm. And so instead of the intention being to learn, it's trying to kind of impose our values on other people, if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, I, 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 I'm sorry. I kind of forgot like what your original no, I, question no, I, was. No, I think, I think, I think, no, it's okay. And I, I, I completely get it. I, um, uh, I, uh, 
I also identify as having ADHD, so I completely understand <laughs> not getting not 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 connecting with the question and going off on a mm -hmm. tangent. So uh, it's 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 actually a fun place to be. Uh, but um, but what I think what you're talking about, um, and and again, I'm looking at your article too right now. Sounds a lot like this idea of kind of ethnocentrism, um, and 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 sort of the idea that uh, you know. Uh, my perspective of what's going on has to be the right one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, um, and and my, my my perspective of kind of how to interact has to make sense and yours cannot. Mm -hmm. um, um, I mean, you, you, you talked for, you talked briefly, uh, I, I don't know if, uh, before we started recording about, um, or maybe during, but about um, uh, living, you know, that, that your, your mom would, would love to have you sort mm -hmm. of live in the, live in the family home until you get mm -hmm. married and maybe even stay after that. Um, uh, whereas, you know, you know, in, uh, you know, predominantly sort of, you know, white kind of European centered kind of, um, uh, families, it's, it's, when are you turning 18? <laughs> so you'll leave. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, and, and, and so, and so, if I was talking to you, um, uh, um, or if I was talking to you and I was trying to provide services for your 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 hypothetical adult child with aut autism mm -hmm. or adult autistic child, um, um, and uh, you know, the first thing I might say is, well, first we got to get him his own place, yeah. you know, where mm -hmm. you might say from a cultural perspective, well, no, 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 we want to keep him for his entire yeah. life. Um, we're, 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 you know, we're, we're collective just, mm -hmm. we're, 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 you know, we're a collectivist mm -hmm. group world, you know, we'll all gather around and take care of this guy forever. I'm not looking for supports to get him into independent living. Right. I'm looking for supports to, to, to sort of, you know, embed him in our family mm -hmm. and, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, I think, I think, there, I think that's a piece that, that, uh, you know, when we're listening, we have to really be open to sort of that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, being willing to learn and being willing to, I guess, mess up and learn from those mistakes yeah. are huge things that we could just do in general as a field. Um, and, and I appreciate that you like kind of touched on kind of this individualism versus collectivism approach. Cause I, I feel mm. like that's something that I've noticed too. I mean, I feel like I, I grew up and this might be just culturally in the Latino culture of there's a lot of mm. emphasized collectivism. Um, yeah. And that's, I don't think that that's really the case um, for kind of in the U S it's more of, mm -hmm. I just care about myself and I don't really care about mm -hmm. others. Um, and so I think too, that plays a part in how we have conversations or act in relation to racism of, we should be caring about others, not just ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, because I mean, I want to see other people succeed, right? Like I just, if I am presented with an opportunity, um, you know, we should be kind of evaluating, okay, should I, could someone else maybe benefit from this opportunity? Like, well, I have more opportunities mm. in the future that are similar, you know? Um, so kind of sharing things like that, sharing our power, or privilege right and all those things yeah for sure well one of the, one of the early episodes I did in the podcast and I say early like it was years ago but started this in January <laughs> um uh but uh, I think it was episode like six or something um it was um uh Addie Addie Cardin and she's a behavior analyst in Senegal mm -hmm. 
and uh, she did a for her master's thesis. She did a uh, she published a, a paper that compared the the perspectives of of parents of autistic kids in the states to the perspectives of parents of autistic kids in Senegal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of reminded me of this uh, this sort of this sort of topic that we're talking about. And I believe they're a kind of a collectivist society as well, because she was saying, you know, um, uh, you know, if you have a kid that sort of, you know, uh, maybe uh, engages in a lot of kind of elopement type behavior, mm-hmm. you know, in, 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 in the States, you know, you know, right away, it would be 911, you know, missing person, mm-hmm. um, you know, search and rescue, you know, you know, the Calvary has to come in and save this kid because, you know, he's likely, you know, something really bad has happened. And she said in Senegal, completely different story in Senegal, you know, the kid goes off missing, shows up at someone else's house. That person just opens mm-hmm. the door and lets him in. Yeah. And they just hang out there for the day. And uh, eventually someone might say Billy's over here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but anyone, anyone in the community would be willing to look out to that child. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it was there was never a worry about him getting lost because wherever he went, someone would accept him. Um, and and I just I just love that sort of perspective of 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 you know, but again, if you didn't know those sorts of pieces, mm-hmm. um, you'd come in and you'd make suggestions, you'd give advice or whatever that was very, you know, centered on your own perspective. Yeah. And I, I'm sorry that I don't want to deviate too much from I know like the question that we're actually <laughs> I love deviating go for it um, deviate okay. away because I was just um and I, I think I've mentioned this publicly before of how maybe kind of in recent years I, I was reflecting on how I supervised services when I was you know working as a clinician and how even though I was working with Spanish-speaking Im- immigrant families I was born in the U.S. and so I have a lot of right kind of how I was raised all has the Latino, you know, kind of culture and the U.S. based culture. Um, mm. And so I would be recommending kind of like what you're saying of like trying to increase independence for for my client and how mm-hmm. um, that probably wasn't what the family wanted for their child. And so, again, even though I came from like a similar background or population. Right. Um, I, you know, I have different experiences. And so I, I need to be, yes. we all need to be aware of those things, uh, yes. you know, imposing if, if our values don't match, we need to be, a, um, what am I trying to say? I guess. Yeah. Like making services accessible and accommodating for all those cultural values, um, and not trying to impose our own, you know, with the family. Totally. Yeah. I like that. And it's kind of actually think of, um, kind of what's happening here right now in Canada. So, you know, for, for us, um, it's been in terms of sort of racism and whatnot. I mean, certainly we have, you know, a lot of the similar issues that you see in the States. I mean, our population is one tenth of the year, so we just don't have as many news stories about it, but um, the big, the big sort of um, topic right now, and hopefully not just right now and continues forever is uh is reconciliation with our first nation communities. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, um, uh, because we, you know, and for, for folks, I think, I think the folks in the States are starting to starting to pick up on this now too, but the whole sort of residential school experience Mm -hmm. and, um, 
and uh, you know, and, and the atrocities that occurred there. And for, and we're talking about something like 150,000 children. Like it's a, a ridiculously high number uh, of kids that, you know, and so far something like 8,000 graves have been sort of uncovered already. Uh, you know, it's awful, awful stuff. But anyway, we're really trying to do a lot of work in kind of that area in terms of reconciliation. Um, and as it sort of applies to sort of our work as behavior analysts, um, um, you know, it's often a lot of, uh, of uh, Indigenous children that are, are you know, in, in the social services sort of, you know, um, in, in the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that, you know, uh, Indigenous children in foster care is is are, are highly overrepresented. I think it's something like eight percent of the kids demographically are indigenous, but fifty six percent of them are in foster care. So some awful number like that, and that foster care has just really become, in a lot of ways, an extension of residential schools and another way to sort of, you know, rip the kids away. Um, that's a bit of a background to to, to the point of um, of of. Uh, what we've been trying to what what I think what the approach has been now has been sort of you know okay no well let's try to connect more with First Nations you know mm-hmm. and uh, you know and we have you know Billy in in this foster home um, you know in 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 village A and and there's a First Nation around the corner let's go to that First Nation and see if we can you know build some relationships and try to bring some culture into Billy's life um and the, and and on the on the cover, that sounds like just a great plan and a really you know forward thinking, culturally humble sort of uh, a way of kind of doing things. Mm-hmm. When in fact, it's totally uh, another example of the story you just told, because every single First Nation community is so different from the mm-hmm. other. Like it's it, like it's not just uh, the fact that they're all Indigenous, but they're like, they speak completely different languages. Um, the customs are completely different. The ceremonies are completely different. Um, you know, the 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 sort of, um, you know, elder responsibilities are different. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, the, even the hierarchical system of sort of running the village is different. Um, and so to sort of make the assumption that, we can just go to any First Nations village and start um, uh, our community and start, um, you know, building relationships and that'll solve all our problems for the, for those particular kids um, is, is so far off. Uh, and so I, you know, I really, I, I really appreciate that, 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 that perspective. Yeah. And, and I feel like the same can kind of apply for at least like people who identify as Hispanic or Latino of mm. like, I don't know. I mean, still to this day, people assume that I am Mexican and it's not that I have a problem with Mm. being identified as Mexican. It's the fact that people just generalize. Right. And just assume that. Okay, especially I think here in Los Angeles, like there's a lot there's a huge Mexican population, um, but there's also a big Central American population. And on the East Coast, right, like in New York, there's a lot of Puerto Ricans and people from the Dominican Republic. And so. Um, you know, we're all not just tacos and tequila. We have, we (laughs) come from different countries and, you know, the countries in the Caribbean, like there are, um, Mm. you know, people who speak Spanish that are, um, that are black or have African roots. Right. And so Mm -hmm. it's not just, uh, people with brown skin and black hair, like in Mexico and other parts of Latin America, people with blonde hair, blue eyes, right. Or who don't speak Mm -hmm. Spanish, Mm -hmm. like people in Brazil, they speak Portuguese and they're still, they're part of Latin America. Right. So, 
there's that too yeah well, yeah, and, and I think especially like uh, I, I get that. Like, I mean, when I was a kid, I thought every every mm-hmm. you know sort of uh, Latina Latinx person mm-hmm. was Mexican. That was the assumption because there was no country south of Mexico, right? <laughs> right. Yep. There, there was nothing going on in the mm-hmm. world beyond Mexico mm-hmm. um, because it's the country that borders, you know, whatever. But you know, since then, I've you know I've been lucky enough to have the opportunity to travel a bit in Central America. I you know spent you know, a couple months down in Ecuador mm-hmm. and, um, and, you know, super different, mm-hmm. um, you know, from place to place. Um, um, and, and like just, just night and day differences uh, that, you know, from both sort of present day, but also the history, you know, just even the, you know, looking at some of the old structures and them and, and how they differ sort of from, uh, from kind of country to country. So, I mean, there, there's, there's a wide amount of diversity, but yeah, it's really easy to sort of just lump somewhere in the category. Yeah, and I guess one more thing on on this, because I don't want to just kind of over, like kind of glaze over the fact that we also have indigenous populations in Latin America, right? And of they course, also yes. speak their own languages, you know, they don't just speak Spanish. And so yep. there is, right, we have those populations as well. Yeah, and that, that's something that really was really cool for me when 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 I went to Ecuador was uh, uh, spent a lot of time with a lot of the indigenous folk and uh, and sort of just the way and I, I wasn't speaking Spanish and I still don't and so maybe I missed a lot of bits but it really seemed like sort of you know the acceptance of of the way of living uh, uh, of the indigenous folk down there was so much different than it is sort of up, up, up our way, um, you know, um, um, just the, the, the sort of the, the, uh, you know, I guess I don't know the, the, I don't know what what the term I'm looking for is, but, um, and I think part of it was also related to sort of the the class system too, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, there's like, there's no, there was no middle class in Ecuador. It was sort of, I think that's a lot, that's the case for a lot of kind of those, some of those Mm -hmm. countries in sort of South America and Central America is you have ultra rich and ultra poor and, and sort of no one in between, but the ultra poor outnumber the ultra rich Mm -hmm. by like, like a thousand fold, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and they're living in, and they're living in, you know, uh, homes and sort of communities that, you know, uh, you know, a a privileged white guy like me might describe as, um, you know, disgusting slum mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right but for them it's they're happy uh you know because we, we got we, we kind of got to tour those households and visit with it was through kind of a rotary sort of related things so we're visiting families and 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 just seeing the joy and the happiness and uh you know and and the ability to sort of make do with so little and 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 um uh even we went to a, i went to an autism intervention kind of program in in uh, in keto or, uh, and, uh, and it was, uh, uh, you know, no, no, or it was sort of a special education kind of program. I went to, no, this was what it was. I went to a group, I went to, I went to those two things, but I also went to a group home and I work a lot in group homes for adults with developmental disabilities. And it was a, and I'm totally digressing. I know it was a, uh, concrete roofless building, roofless windowless structure mm-hmm. in the middle of a jungle. Um, um, with, you know, with dirt floors. Mm-hmm. Um, and these people were as happy as mm-hmm. I've ever seen anyone living in a group home. Mm-hmm. Um, the materials for communication, you know, were literally hand-drawn figurines on pieces on, on bark or pieces of paper. Um, you know, so the reason there's no board maker, or, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and, or, or laminators mm-hmm. and Velcro, you know, um, and yet, 
and yet, you know, it, it, it would have been so easy to be to make judgments of, about these folks, but yet they were, you know, so much more happy, happier, and so much more like just like in the game than you know any 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 million dollar program that I've ever been involved in. Um, yeah yeah and it was just it was just really cool yeah I feel like that kind of relates to what I said earlier about like for them that functionally that worked for them even though topographically yes. it, you know we would say that that would never work but it does for them yeah 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 no exactly um so uh, kind of getting into probably what could be the second longest podcast episode <laughs> I've ever done. Um, uh, Addie Carden, actually, in Senegal, she was the longest. We, we, I think we clocked two and a quarter uh, just because the conversation was so interesting. And clearly this one is too. And that's why we're just going and going. And I could keep going for longer. Uh, but I know I promised uh, you, you, your, your, your freedom um, 17 minutes ago. It's fine. We're um, good. So, <laughs> um, but I will just say for folks, check out the rest of that article. There are, some just really kind of some of the kind of relatively obvious, I think, steps around listening. So, you know, the, 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 the sort of things that you need to be kind of thinking about. So caution regarding multitasking. I mentioned that at the beginning of the episode, mm -hmm. you know, so don't, don't be on, don't, don't be on your phone while you're having a conversation with somebody, you know, um, but I think all just also, it's just sort of having that sort of full kind of presence and attention uh, towards folks. Uh, avoid that listener interjection yes which is really important and uh, i just finished uh, scott herbst um uh, act uh, supervising dynamically course mm -hmm. and and he 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 talks a lot about in interjection and not adding more to the conversation than the than is already mm -hmm. there and to, to really be empathic don't make suggestions on what you think is happening right. just you know, repeat the facts and that's it you know those sorts of things um you talk about um I think, but, the, but I think the two the two other pieces you talk about. One, I think we talked we're touching a little bit the, uh, on sort of language differences, having that patience during language discrepancies. I thought that was a really important one, just particularly when it comes to sort of um, um, you know idioms and phrase and, and different phrases and that sort of thing, but also just um, uh, general kind of you know maybe you know, uh, for folks maybe that are speaking English as a second language, mm -hmm. they're going to, they might make some, mis some quote unquote mistakes mm -hmm. when they're speaking and to sort of, it's really easy to sort of take someone who's, you know, speaking English as a second or third or fourth mm -hmm. language, you know, and, and that alone, I mean, the fact that this person speaks three other languages fluently and, and you don't speak any, mm -hmm. um, um, and yet, yet you're judging them on the quality of their English right. and, 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 and also, potentially even judging their IQ and, and and their ability to sort of function in life based on their skills at English. And so I think that's a really important point that you brought up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I consider myself like as a primary, like my primary language is English, even though I think when yep. I was growing up, my primary language was Spanish, and then it switched when I went to school. Um, but even yep. now, like, I mean, I'm sure I don't know how many times throughout this conversation, I've been like, I forget what word or, you know, I'm trying to think sure. of like so i mean we all have difficulties with that sometimes so and, and in fact it's actually uh 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 for some folks that's actually is actually a, a a diagnosable brain injury called uh, expressive aphasia mm -hmm. where you literally can't come up with words for things out of a relative that has it and um and, you know and they struggle just because they just the word just isn't there. And so just, just being aware of those sorts of pieces. Mm -hmm. 
the last comment that you made, the last recommendation that you made is maybe we could, you could just touch on this one a tiny bit, because I think this one isn't as simple. Um, and it's welcoming difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. You know, it's easy enough to say don't multitask. It's easier enough to say don't add anything to the communicate to the conversation. You know, it's easy enough to say recognize that their lang- their their grasp on your language may not be perfect, but give them a break. Um, but this part, I think, is probably the hardest. Yeah, agreed. Um, How do you do that? <laughs> and, and I think like this is where maybe ACT can come in. Um, because yeah. as humans, we just tend to avoid a right kind of aversive stimuli. And so this could be considered an aversive stimulus or aversive, aversive situation right. of having conversations about racism, sexism, right? Um, whatever mm, it may mm, be. Mm. But so I guess maybe pulling from ACT is. If that's a, a value of someone's is to be anti-racist or be anti-sexist, um, we need to kind of welcome those difficult or aversive stimuli, right? Because that mm. will get us, mm-hmm. if we behave in that certain, in that way, it, it's in, in alignment with what we value. And sometimes those situations means, right, them being aversive. Um, right. and so right. don't, oh, I'm trying to like, it, don't think of the, the journey, think of the destination. Sure. 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 Um, but yeah, I mean, I struggle with this too. I mean, I'm sure like people will probably say, oh my gosh, like these three authors just do all these things all this, all the time. I mean, I right, certainly yeah. don't, um, you know, I think like life in general is just about learning. Um, yeah. and it's, you have to be comfortable with the uncomfortable. And like, we all are going to mess up sometimes and that's, that's going to happen. But what matters is that we learn from those mess ups, you know, and are receptive to people telling us, Hey, you messed up and okay, well, how can I not mess up in the future? Yeah, no, I think, and I think that's what I was kind of wondering is it's just, and you, you kind of nailed, hit the nail on the head right there with the, um, you know, the, the discomfort piece, Mm -hmm. because we've been hearing a lot sort of um again sort of post george floyd um from folks even in our in particularly in our field um um uh, around um you know the importance of sitting with the discomfort mm-hmm. and uh and 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 being open to sort of you know you're you're going to hear a bunch of new things uh you're going to hear a, you're you're going to you know, you're going to be told a bunch of new, a bunch of things that you know you you could take offense to, you know, um, um, and but instead, just you know, just 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 sit with it because that's part of the learning process. And that was such a huge lesson for me. Um, I now know whenever I'm having a conversation, and I've had quite a few moments of discomfort in our conversation today. I will say mm-hmm. um, that I used to sort of associate that level that discomfort with. You know, um, I'm doing something wrong. I must have said something wrong. Mm-hmm. I, I was a bad person. You know, um, I've offended or whatever. And maybe I and maybe those things are true. Um, but um, and 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 of course, then there's responses for that as well. Of course, to acknowledge and apologize and so on. But um, but just sort of uh, realizing that when I when I'm having a conversation with someone, um, particularly someone you know. Uh, you know that that might be a person of color, and we're and we're talking about 
you know, um, you know, topics like racism, or even if we're not, if we're just talking period um, about anything, um, and you know, and maybe I get a, a a a shot of implicit bias in my head or whatever, or or they say something that you know um, clearly applies to me and everyone in sort of my you know uh, my uh, identity group or whatnot. Um, that that feeling in my gut isn't a bad thing. Um, and I, and I think in a way I don't, I never used act, but I think in a way I've kind of maybe, you know, uh, uh, taken some acceptance there and some, some, and, uh, and kind of realized, you know, that's a good thing that I'm feeling weird in my gut. Um, uh, and that means I, maybe I, I'm learning something new and I'm learning it in a different way and, and, and I should be, you know, embracing that, not pushing it away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess if I can make like a recommendation Please. for listeners of a book. Um, yeah. And I cannot remember how to pronounce the author's name. So I'm just going to spell it out. Um, it yeah. is by, so the first name is I-J-E-O-M-A. And then her last name is O-L-U-O. And her book is titled, So You Want to Talk About Race. Um I am part of the um, Southern California chapter of the Association for Contextual Behavior Science Board. Hmm. Um, And I am a board member at large with a DEI focus, so a diversity, equity, inclusion focus. And so we have, um, I started this book club that's a DEI focused book club. And I picked this book. Cool. And we read this book. And she provides a lot of like actual actions um, that people can take. And I read this book and I marked it all up with like notes and trying to hmm. connect it to behavior analysis. Um, yeah. And so I think like a book like this, if people are really interested and this is a value of theirs of being anti-racist, um, they should read this book. Um, awesome. I, I really love it. She even gives, I forget, like she just gives a bunch of recommendations of, um, you know, when you're talking to someone about racism, like how do you, like, I forget, I forget exactly like the, you know, kind of rec- like this, situations um but or like she says like oh if someone says this this is how what you can say back you know kind of those kinds of things right okay gotcha Um, right very good yeah so i i absolutely love this book so and i recommend it to to everyone wicked oh great recommendation thank you i'll uh see if i can dig it up myself um awesome cool well this is good i think we'll stop here um you know, again, we could easily jump into hour three. Um, this is a topic that could go on for a while, but I don't want everyone to press stop and, and not listen to the whole thing. Um, um, really, really great kind of kind of work you've done so far. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be lots more uh, really interesting works coming out and hopefully we can uh, can can have you on the podcast again i I really i really enjoyed this conversation so thanks so much oh yeah no thanks for for reaching out and for you know seeing the value in my work um i really appreciate it no worries it's 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 there (laughs) yeah wicked all right thanks again thank you